The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how-did-it-fit-in-there box. You just let it unfold, and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, yes, your humble and dedicated rabbi, reveals how the world really works. And, of course, you know that uh, the next thing I'm going to say is that uh, one of the ways in which the world really works, but no, Let's just uh, dive right in and say that every now and then, in fact, to be honest, more frequently than I like, I encounter somebody else writing something far better than I've ever written it, far better than I've ever said it, and writing it in a way that I wish I had written it first. Now, there you go, revealing a dastardly part of myself. But there it is. And, uh, and you find it in the, the most unusual places. Uh, it's not necessarily all nonfiction, sometimes in fiction. And the example I want to quote for you today is actually from a, uh, a piece of fiction which is, again, if, if you are going to read fiction, read good fiction. And this is a book called Marjorie Morningstar by a friend of mine, the great Herman Woke. Uh, may he live and be healthy. He is about 100 years old. Now, I mean, I mean that very seriously. He is, and uh, he's, he's had a remarkable career and is in the middle of it. He's still not stopped writing. But... Uh, Marjorie Morningstar, he wrote a number of years ago, and it was almost sort of uh, required reading for particularly for Jews trying to get a grasp, trying to understand the, the Jewish experience in early 20th century America and understanding the, the, the extraordinary interface between Jewish America and non-Jewish America particularly in the cultural elitism of the Northeast. And uh, the story revolves around a romance between a young Jewish girl 
Marjorie Mor Morgenstern. Um, Susan, her name was Morgenstern, right? I think so. And uh, Morgenstern means in German, morning star. So she was from an immigrant family from Germany. And she changed her name in because she wanted to make it in movies. She really wanted to be accepted in this new exciting world of America. And so this young Jewish girl, uh, growing up in a Jewish family, changed her name to Mar from Marge, Margie Morgenstern to Marjorie Morningstar. And, uh, and the book revolves around her romance with a non-Jewish, secularized uh, American, uh, very well-educated um, uh, playwright, uh, thinker, author, an interesting, interesting guy. Obviously, not a nobody by any means at all. And uh, and so I am actually going to read you, and I know I, I, I don't like doing this often because listening to me reading, I, even if it's great stuff like this, uh, it's usually not as interesting as listening to me talk, not because of, um, of what, that what I'm saying is necessarily more profound or more interesting than what I could be reading. In this case, it isn't. But... Um, when I speak, you're gaining a direct glimpse into my soul. I'm not reading from a teleprompter. I'm not reading from notes, uh, which, by the way, to go back to uh, Donald Trump in election 2016, uh, the fact that he was the only candidate who spoke without a teleprompter was enormously refreshing to me. Uh, the fact that uh, Barack Obama almost never was caught without a teleprompter tells me something. In other words, a man frightened to reveal his soul it's hard. And, and look, I understand. It is frightening to reveal your soul. Uh, when I think back to how long it took me to write my first book, and I think back to how grueling it was and how emotionally wrenching it was, a large part of it was due entirely to how very difficult it is to come to terms with the idea that you are literally granting a window into your innermost soul to the world. It is difficult. But at any rate, I, I do want to read you a, a little bit from Marjorie Morningstar, and it's uh, from page 440 in my edition. So it's, as you can <laughs> gather, it's not a short read, uh, and this is sort of well into the book. And, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to be, I'm not going to read two pages, 440 and 441, but I'm going to uh, pull out little excerpts I want to read to you. So... Um, Noel is talking to Marjorie Morningstar, and he's saying, Despite all my peccadilloes, I've done pretty much what I told you I would in my letter, Margie. I've really dived into philosophy. What's more, I think I've come up with a pearl. You remember I've been saying for years I was going to read economics someday so I could argue with communists on their own ground? Well, I've done it. And I've come up with some astounding results. I've been through Marx and Engels. But, of course, that gets you nowhere. You have to backtrack through all the Britishers Marx was trying to refute, right back to old Adam Smith. And then you have to work forward to Keynes. And eventually, you've got to branch off into general philosophy. Because economics is nothing but a splinter of the whole problem of human conduct in a material world. Okay, well, that was... Uh, that was Herman Woke putting words into the mouth of uh, Noel. And, um, and that is an absolute beaut. 
where, where he says the whole problem of human conduct in a material world. You've heard me, if you're a regular listener to the show, you've heard me speak about this many, many times, but nowhere quite as succinctly as that. The problem is that we human beings are spiritual beings, and we have been placed in a material world. Now, again, many of you are, are not with me on that same page of being placed here. Uh, for many of you, we evolved here materialistically, and, and that's fine. I've got no beef with you on that today. Uh, as far as today is concerned, however we got here, the fact remains, and, and this I don't think anybody can dispute that we are fundamentally spiritual beings in a way that uh, chimpanzees and other primates are not. By that I mean to say that the, the important things in our life are things that cannot be measured in a laboratory. They're not materialistic things. They're not physical things. Um, the, how we feel about ourselves, our, our innate need to sacrifice I've spoken about. Uh, our need for love and, and recognition and acknowledgement, all of these things are, are things that no evidence exists for any animal needing, but human beings do. And uh, I could spend the rest of today's short show speaking about the ways in which uh, it is unarguable that we are, in fact, spiritual beings. And it's equally unarguable that we are in a material world. And therein lies the whole problem, right? Because the world of the spirit is an infinite world, and the world of materialism is a limited and finite world. Uh, so there, there we are. We are body and soul. Our souls are infinite. Our bodies are very finite and very limited. And, uh, and Noel in Marjorie Morningstar captures that right there. All right, I want to uh, jump down the page a little bit. Uh, okay, so now jumping to the top of page 441. Well, actually, Noel said... Like all massive ideas, this one must be demonstrated and documented in about eight fat volumes, but it can be stated in a line or two. Marx's big contribution remains the criticism of religion, morality, and philosophy as mere products of and excuses for economic practices. It's a truth. A brilliant comment, not a doubt of it. Its effect has been devastating. But what I've discovered is that if you dig deep enough, the whole picture swivels around. It turns out in the end, this is my original insight, and I may have to devote the rest of my life to proving it, but I know I can. It turns out in the end that all economic practices are really produced by the religious beliefs of a society, and that all of economics, all the central questions, money, rent, labor, everything, are part of applied theology. That's what I mean by standing marks on his head. So, um, if uh, if this kind of thing, if, if the story of... Uh, uh, you know, Jewish, non-Jewish interaction in uh, the Northeast during the first part of the 20th century. Uh, well, actually, uh, all up to World War II, all the way through. Um, it's uh, if it does interest you, Marjorie Morningstar by Herman Woke, W-O-U-K, is um, is a very good read, and uh, and I think you'll probably enjoy it and 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 find a lot of value in it as as I have. 
Uh, and and perhaps for me, this is the central part of the whole book. That's for me personally. But there's plenty, plenty, plenty more. But uh, but in other words, his stating of of this fundamental truth, something which I I absolutely am convinced is is solid, um, which is that uh, Marx and and socialism in general tries to suggest that all of religion and morality and, and this kind of thing is a human construct based on our materialistic economic needs to eat. Everything else flows out of that. And, uh, and what Herman Woke does so effectively here is sort of turn it around and say, no, on the contrary, all of economics is really the result of the religious beliefs of a society. Beautiful, and I believe 100% accurate. It's just that he said it so much more succinctly and so much more elegantly than I ever have. Um, okay, before we take a quick break, I commend for your economic attention a wonderful package we call our uh, Income Abundance Set. And uh, I'd like you to read about it. It's specially on sale right now for listeners of this show at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, by the way, at the website, you can also read current and past columns in our Thought Tool series, uh, past and current columns in Susan Lappin's Susan's Musings series. Uh, you can look at uh, Ask the Rabbi questions and answers. And uh, you can also take a look at the Income Abundance set, read about it. If you or anyone in your family needs a complete brain reset, um, if you need an entirely new approach to your understanding of money, if you need to escape the shackles of bad economic thinking in the past, um, if you're locked into the poverty syndrome, for all of those reasons, uh, the income abundance set is truly the perfect antidote. But you can read quite a bit about it on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And if, and only if, if this is something that you or somebody in, in your orbit of either social or family interactions needs, then this would be a good thing for them. Uh, it would also be a good thing for me. And all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. A quick break, and uh, we move on. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Back again, everybody. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for being part of the show, and thanks for helping promote the show. Tell other people about it. I appreciate that. And uh, going on to ways in which we see that... Uh, uh, economics and financial matters uh, are not auxiliary to the human experience. You know, if you if you like basket weaving, you can do you can do basket weaving. 
Uh, if you're not interested in basket weaving, you can ignore it. Uh, if you if you like English literature, if you like uh, boating, well, all of these things are auxiliary to life. Take them or leave them. But uh, money, different story altogether. Now, that's why I always say that uh, among the things you are absolutely obliged to make sure that you understand and that you teach your children and you teach them well is how money works. Um, take something like uh, taxation. Now, you know, you think to yourself, well, you, you think that tax only started when the American government introduced a federal income tax? No, not at all. This goes back to the dawn of the human experience. Why do I say that? Because there were always rulers, there always were always those with power, and their need for money and their appetite for money was limitless, and their ability to force it out of those over whom they wielded power was almost infinite. However, it was not an income tax. That is a relatively recent phenomenon. And so in biblical times and before, there were taxes, but they were sort of like a head tax, a poll tax, if you like. Um, it really wasn't until relatively recently. It was um, uh, late in the French experience, the 18th century, that France tried to impose an income tax. And, of course, it was not fairly imposed. It was extracted by the upper classes upon the so-called lower classes and degenerated into, into something unequal and arbitrary and unfair. And it probably played its part in, in whipping up the frenzy of the French Revolution. Um, I should mention, by the way, that the, this tax, this 10% tax that Louis XIV imposed and it was in like 1708 or 1709 or 1710. It was in the early years of the 18th century. Louis XIV imposed uh, a tax of 10%. And it was horrendously unpopular, as, as indeed it, it should have been. And in an attempt to sort of calm the populace, <laughs> too little too late as it turned out, he, uh, he cut it to 5%. Um, but uh, the, the French Revolution eliminated it completely. Obviously not for long. Before very long, they became the rulers, and they reimposed the income tax. Um, Great Britain, I don't think, imposed an income tax until uh, 1798. And uh, this was done because the British government needed money to fight the revolutionary wars um, with the French. And... Uh, and that was probably the first modern income tax the world has ever seen, mainly because it graduated rates, all right, which is exactly what the progressive world today sees as an absolute fundamental necessity for income tax, meaning that uh, on low incomes, uh, and I don't remember the exact details, but with the British, if, if the annual income was below a hundred pounds or so, then they they paid ten percent a year. If the income was like two hundred pounds, it went up higher and higher. And and for those days, it was incredibly complicated. Um, the the eighteen excuse me the seventeen ninety eight British income tax law took up about two hundred and pay two hundred pages. 
the uh, United States Income Tax Code, um, taken in its entirety, uh, is well over 20,000 pages. And just to sort of give you a perspective of what that means, if you could read the, that at the rate of a page every five minutes, and because it's complicated, it's not fiction, it's complicated, you've got to really sort of read it carefully, and at times you've got to read more, you've got to read it more than once, don't for a moment think that uh, it's easy to read uh, at the rate of five minutes a page. But if you read five minutes a page and you did nothing else for eight hours a day, you didn't stop, you, d you did nothing but read the income tax code for uh, eight hours a day, it would take you more than a year to get through it. And so what are the chances of any human being able to, being, human being, being able to understand the whole of the uh, income tax code? All right, about zero simply not possible but there it is and uh, and part of its lack of popularity is that we all know that uh, it has unfairness and corruption built into it it has special provisions for special interests uh, and and above all it is so complicated that how do how do I put this it is so complicated that if you are not hiring a specialist to do your taxes you are paying more than you need to that is, you know, unless you are in a very, very simple, low category situation, and even then, I have to tell you, uh, it is my conviction that if you are doing your taxes yourself, or you are using the, the corner income tax shop, you are paying more than you should be paying. That's, it's so complicated. Now, for many people, it reaches a point where you say, you know what, I... I may as well just pay it because it's going to cost me what I would save if I used a professional. Um, even in that situation, I'm not sure that you're not better off paying the professional the fee rather than paying the extra tax. And, and there are reasons why I believe that to be the case. But, uh, but at any, any rate, that was what was going on uh, when income taxes began, in, as I say, in England in 1798. And um, eventually what happened was they, uh, they, they had a, a, a piece a few years later, not long, like three, four, five years later, they had a treaty and they canceled the income tax, right? Because the only way people accepted it was it was a necessity of fighting the war. They needed the money. And so when the war was over, they canceled it. However, it wasn't more than a few years after that no war this time that the British Parliament uh, enacted a new income tax law. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, this one was also fairly sophisticated for the early 1800s because you know what they did? They introduced the withholding tax, which didn't come to America till much, much, much later, uh, which is a, it's a gruesome thing, of course, because it uh, stops you realizing how much of your sweat is being extracted by the government. You start thinking in terms of after-tax income, and um, and in in reality, and I, I don't remember which brave American industrialist it was, who um, who gave he paid his workers at the factory in one window, gave them the checks, and then everyone had to go to the next window. He paid them in cash. Everyone went to the next window where he took a whole lot of their money back. And so he claimed that he was following the withholding because as far as the government was concerned, he was 
being their tax collector, which is what uh, the government does, right? Turns every employer into a tax collector. And he was claiming he did that uh, because he, he, but the government stopped him from giving them their, giving his workers their full pay and then pulling it back. He had the motivation of wanting his workers to know how much the government was taking. Uh, and that was deemed unlawful. He wasn't allowed to do that. But the, uh, the time the British government reintroduced the tax in the early 1800s, um, I think like 1803 or 1802, very early, uh, they introduced this withholding tax. And uh, people protested. People really didn't like it. But um, there it, it was. The uh, tax was introduced and, and, and became a reality for uh, life in England and, of course, uh, soon after for, the, for life in the United States as well. Okay, quick break. Go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and read about the income abundance set. Uh, it comprises uh, two of our best-selling books, right? The Thou Shall Prosper, which uh, Dave Ramsey claims to be among the handful of most important uh, money books he's ever read, and uh, Business Secrets from the Bible, Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance. And then it also includes a number of audio programs for things that you need to hear again and again, uh, things you listen to while you're uh, hiking or exercising or, or commuting, whatever it is. At any rate, it's the Income Abundance Set and... Uh, RabbiDanielLappin.com, where you can read more about it. Quick break, and I will be right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network, on demand. Here we are, back again together on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and talking about... Uh, Certain things that never change. Right? I, I speak about the fact that the, the, the more that things change in, in the uncertain and, uh, and, and turbulent world in which we live today, uh, it becomes increasingly necessary to depend upon those things that never change. And, you know, people joke about, the fact, oh, you know, death and taxes never change. Well, uh, that is very true. And uh, the joke conceals a fundamental reality, which is that... Uh, Taxes, in one form or another, were always there because people with power will extract money from those without. Now, in the United States of America, uh, the degree of tax compliance is higher than anywhere else in the whole world. And governments all around the world envy the United States government for their ability uh, to extract uh, income taxes. And, um, and books have been written trying to explain why it is that Americans seem um, so much more docile about paying taxes than other nations. And I'm not 100% sure of the answer, but I do think part of it is the, uh, the, the representative form of government that we have, where essentially we, we really do feel, I think more than is, is reasonable, we do feel that it is uh, that you know government works for us, and I don't want to sound uh, obnoxious about it, but on a certain level, we've sort of bought the lie that government works for us, and they only govern with our consent, and everything they do is with our permission. 
Well, it's not true because the complexity and vastness of government is such that most of us have no little, uh, no ability. We have no excess leisure in our lives to mo to monitor what government is doing, and so they operate operate behind a, a veil of esotericism and complexity. Uh, and and to the extent that most of us do have any extra time in our lives, we really don't want to spend it uh, trying to probe behind the iron curtain of government invulnerability to see what it is they're doing. You know, life is too short to spend doing that. And so government enjoys this enormous advantage, and taxation is what makes it all possible. Uh, you want to see government shrink? Defund it. That's all you've got to do. And, uh, and of course, we don't see that happening anytime really soon. And I do think that, uh, to some extent, the appeal of Donald Trump, certainly this is true for me, some of the appeal was his um, uh, ardently expressed desire to slay the dragon of government, to, to cut down the size of government. And when I told you many times during 2016, uh, I said that... Um, that if he was able to bring to government instead of political experience, that's the last thing I want to see in, in anyone going into government, but if you could bring some of the pragmatism of a successful businessman, that would be great. And part of the pragmatism of a successful businessman would naturally involve significantly trimming the size of government. That's That was my belief then. It remains my hope now. But, uh, but uh, so, you know, so what happens? Well, in going back to colonial times in America, uh, there were various uh, different tax systems, um, kind of income taxes. They were sort of different ways that the, the various colonies tried. For instance, Rhode Island uh, was a terrible system. There they, they, um, they made every citizen uh, guess the financial abilities and, and, and property of 10 of his neighbors. Uh, in other words, everybody had to uh, guess how, what income and what property he thought 10 of his neighbors possessed. And then on that basis, uh, the government of Rhode Island would assess taxes. Right, horrible, right? Uh, you can just see the opportunities for abuse and horrible stuff. But finally, uh, President Madison had a secretary of the Treasury. His name was Dallas, Alexander Dallas. And in 1814, he came up. Uh, with a uh, the idea of a federal income tax, but this was only in order to fund war. Back then, and up till the points we're talking about, nobody dreamed of the audacity of imposing a tax on the income earned by citizens uh, other than for the emergencies of fighting a war. So Alexander Dallas proposes this idea of extracting money from citizens based on how much they're earning, but um, shortly after that, the War of 1812 ended, and there was an immediate drop in how much money the federal government needed. And so uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury Dallas was shouted down, and, um, and, and that was it. I mean, there was, that was the last we heard of uh, federal income tax until the Civil War starts. And then both the Union and the Confederacy pass income tax laws, 
um, right? Because they've got to fight a war, obviously. So you know, imagine that. Imagine that. That uh, relatively recently, right? By the time of the Civil War, the idea that a government could just tax the income of citizens willy-nilly was non-existent. So, so there we are in 1862, uh, Congress passes a tax, and there's a lot of controversy about it, by the way. It's not easy, but they finally pass a tax in 1862 uh, providing for an income tax, and it's a progressive income tax with, you know, 2%, 4% on growing incomes up to a maximum. They didn't dream of trying to take more than 10% of people's income. That was the maximum amount. And who signs this uh, national income tax law? Nobody but President Lincoln, who, by the way, at the same signing ceremony, signed this income tax law and also a law <laughs> punishing polygamy. <laughs> so, uh, and the uh, New York Stock Exchange took a dive the next day. And don't think it was because of the polygamy law. It wasn't. It was because of the income tax law. So... Um, that's what happened. Uh, the law remains in force. The, the Civil War ends 1865, and the law remains till 1872. Uh, but it was being constantly reduced and amended, um, and uh, finally, uh, uh, the the, the uh, because of complaints complaints that 10 percent was too high, and it was and you know what it it went down because of the, the population complained that it was discriminating against people of wealth. Anyway, by 1866, they're collecting about $75 million a year. And, um, and, and then the, 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 the pressure begins to mount. So, so what happens then? Then it, they hit on the idea of taxing not only income but also businesses, and uh, it was President, actually President Cleveland, who came up with that idea. Well, the response was outcry, and again, just to give you an idea of, you know, today we think of the income tax as completely normal, and you know, it isn't. It's it's an insanity that government can take away this amount of the sweat of hardworking, honest citizens. Um, there was a senator from Ohio, John Sherman. Uh, you'll remember the Sherman Antitrust Act and so on. Anyway, John Sherman screamed um, in the Senate, this was socialism and communism, and it was, it was the work of the devil. Uh, he did everything he could to oppose this idea. Um, in the House, a congressman, and I don't remember who it was from Pennsylvania, uh, shouted like this, and I'm going to say exactly what he said. It's from the congressional record. An income tax? A tax so odious that no administration ever dared to impose it, except in time of war. It is unutterably distasteful, both in its moral and material aspects. There again, by the way, the moral and the material that we've been talking about the whole show. It does not belong to a free country. It is class legislation. Do you desire to offer a reward to dishonesty and to encourage perjury? The imposition of the tax will corrupt the people. It will bring in its train the spy and the informer. It will necessitate a swarm of officials 
with inquisitorial powers. Mr. Chairman, pass this bill and the Democratic Party signs its death warrant. <laughs> See, that's, that's how they felt about the income tax. And by the way, all the screaming and shouting was for a 2% federal tax on all incomes over $4,000. Anyway, they passed it into law in 1894. And uh, the Democratic Party survived, of course. But um, the law was not. You know why? The Supreme Court invalidated it because they felt, the Supreme Court felt that this tax violated the constitutional provision forbidding direct taxes unless they were apportioned among the states according to population. Um, anyways, it's, it's funny, you know, this, none of this was raised during the sort of emergency of the Civil War tax, but you can see that bringing an income tax, a federal income tax to the United States of America was no simple matter. And uh, this, this income tax was dead, right, for about 15 years or something. Um, eventually, what do we get? The, the 16th Amendment that gives Congress the power to levy taxes without apportionment among the various states. And who puts this forward? I mean, gosh, <laughs> what can you say about the Republican Party? What can you say? Would you believe it's the Republican Party? who puts forward the 16th Amendment, confident in the stupidity of this, right? Oh, it'll never be ratified. What do you put it forward for if you don't think it should be ratified? But they do it for political reasons, and, um, and it would never be ratified. To their dismay, the 16th Amendment does get ratified in 1913, and uh, Congress enacts a tax on individuals of between 1% and 7%, and, uh, and also a flat tax of 1% on the net profits of all corporations. And that, my friends, put us on the path to where we are today. The best you can do is try and increase your own revenue. Yes, it does mean you're going to pay more taxes, but of what is left to you, you do get a little bit more. In other words, uh, to put it bluntly, taking aside every all of this stuff, it's all true, it's all problematic, it's all bad, but the more you make, the more you do get to keep. Yes, the government takes more and more the more you make, of course, but you do have more if you make more. And what's more, you can then afford top-rate tax advisors to make sure that uh, you can be creative about it, and that's indeed what you are obliged to do. All of that is part of increasing your income, and that's why we have the income abundance set. It's on sale for listeners to the show. Go over to the website, please, rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. I have a brother, David. A lot of people get confused with him, and I don't know why Daniel and David don't even sound alike to me, but uh, people very often think I say David when I say Daniel, and... Uh, and so my brother David enjoys the benefit of um, people contacting him, thinking that they're contacting me. But at any rate, go to Rabbi Daniel, not David, Rabbi DanielLappin.com and read about the Income Abundance Set, which I think is something genuinely useful. Uh, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break.
There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. You know, he's 40, going on 41 now. And so you lose a little bit of something. You do, uh, when that. you first turn 40. Man. I mean, obviously yeah. not everyone can be me, 41 years old and the best uh-huh. shape of anyone's uh-huh. life. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. I am. I'm 41. Mm, I'm, no. I'm 41. No, I know you are. Yeah, I know that part. That part was true. Everything else you said was nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi back again at the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, back for the final segment of today's show, ladies and gentlemen, uh, looking at taxation. Well, perhaps one last little tidbit of information Make of it what you will, but uh, here in the United States of America, uh, the government spends about 50 cents to collect $100 of revenue. That's the the cost of collection, which is very, very low. Um, Canada, it's about a dollar and a quarter. They pay more, it costs them more than twice uh, than it costs in the United States to, I don't know, by the way, I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, you've got to think this through. Um, in uh, England, it's about three times as much. A, uh, uh, in f- European countries, France and, and Belgium, many, many times higher. Uh, nobody seems to collect taxes as inexpensively as does the United States of America. And, um, and you know what's really disturbing to me? Again, confusion on the moral front is what bothers me so much where people like uh, Bill Gates's father, people like Warren Buffett, people like George Soros, and I, I'm not comparing all those people on every, in every possible way, I can assure you. The, la- the last mentioned is, uh, is a particularly odious individual. But, um, but what they all share is this idea that they can boast of their piety, they can wear a mantle of virtue, by proclaiming their eagerness to pay taxes. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to pay taxes. Well, if you are in that multi-billionaire category, uh, fine, no problem. But it's not the same for the rest of us. And the problem is conflating morality with giving money to the government. Uh, Folks, charity is one thing. Taxation is another altogether. And it always disturbs me. When uh, clergymen, and I'm going to say it, ignorant clergymen who know as much about economics as I know about brain surgery, which I can assure you is not a lot, uh, ignorant clergymen speak about the virtue of, of, of taxation. This is a positive thing. This is a good thing. And uh, it isn't. It's, it's not a good thing. It's a very big problem because government now, with almost limitless power to tax, has the ability to grow limitlessly. And one of the things I often say to clergymen when I end up in debates with them is I say, look, um, would you uh, give marriage advice to a couple after you've only spoken to the husband or after you've only spoken to the wife? I mean... Tragically, I actually know of a few clergymen who've done just that. But generally speaking, a clergyman says, no, of course not. Of course, you've got to hear both sides, and uh, at least then you're in something of a position to be able to be helpful. 
but not if you haven't heard both sides of it, right? Well, when you suddenly make these proclamations that it's good people should pay more taxes and it's virtuous to pay tax, you haven't heard the other side. You don't know that there is another entire side. Do you know anything at all about enormous wastage in government? Do you know how government employees go on expensive, luxurious junkets? Do you have any idea of the entire class of uh, government rulers that have now been created? People who've never in their entire lives had any experience at all of wealth creation. All they do is spend other people's money. This isn't virtuous. This isn't moral. But people don't open themselves to the immorality of taxation. There is just as much of an argument to be made, if not more, of the immorality of taxation than the morality of it. And that is, I think, something that people really need a, a bigger understanding of. Uh, we, we pay our taxes because it's legal and we have to, and the consequences of not doing so are uh, uh, gargantuan and, uh, and, and very, very heavy. But, um, but the idea that we're fulfilling something of moral virtue in paying our taxes, not true at all. Absolutely not. The, the idea, don't forget that in the 60s, early 60s, the highest tax rate in England was 90%. And that's exactly where it would go if politicians had their way. Why would they really do believe that all these good things they could do are only hampered by lack of tax revenue and in the United States, fortunately, constitutional issues? Anyway, that's, uh, that's part of it. All right, my friends, um, that is the end of uh, today's tax rant. It's, it's not a rant. It's a, it really is a plea for serious thought because um, taxation and mu much government policy eventually gets enacted in a country like the United States when people do believe in the morality of it. And, uh, and if the moral foundation can be eroded, it becomes much more difficult for tax increases to be passed. And that's what, uh, at root, what I really am trying to do is to erode moral, the moral foundations of taxation. Uh, it, is, um, it is fundamentally a problem. It is not a good thing that there is a necessity for some level of taxation. Fair enough. But that that rate should be what it is today where many, many American citizens, when you add everything in, not counting the cost of regulation, that's them even more, but uh, people are paying close to 50% of the sweat of their brow to government at one level or another. That's a very, very big problem. That diminishes the ability of hardworking, family-minded Americans to sustain and support their families, and it increases the tendency of people to become wards of the state. It increases the tendency of people to move onto the dole, which, of course, increases the government's justification for collecting more taxes, a, a vicious circle with no virtue to it at all. All right, well, uh, that's as far as we're going to go on today's show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 
visit the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Write to me there. Uh, read our previous columns or current columns. Uh, take a look at the income abundance set made up of a uh, number of hours of audio programs as well as two best-selling books, in the uh, Business Secrets from the Bible and Thou Shall Prosper. All of them there at rabbidaniellappin.com. It's also how you contact me, and I appreciate it. I, I love getting your letters. Thank you very much indeed for all of that. Uh, that brings us to as far as I'm going to go for today. So thanks for being part of the show, and I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm your rabbi. God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.